episode 377 of Retro Encounter, RPG fans, mostly weekly, currently bi-weekly, podcast of many topics. My name is Zach Wilkerson, and I will be your host today. And today we are here to talk about Final Fantasy VI, uh, mostly because it was recently released as a pixel remaster, also because it is one of the best games of all time, in your humble host's opinion. Uh, but before we get into my pretentious ramblings about this game, let us introduce the panelists, starting with you, Lucy. Hi, I'm Lucy Gray. I'm uh, part of RPG's uh, fans' social media uh, team. I mostly cause havoc throughout the uh, website, <laughs> and uh, I have been a very, very long-time fan of Final Fantasy VI. Um, I've had a love-hate relationship with some of the aspects of this game, oh, but I am Don't you so... worry, we will get to them. <laughs> <laughs> Shush. Um, so I'm happy to talk about it. I'm really glad that I had an excuse to uh, play this uh, once again and try and fix some of these screw-ups. Excellent. It's always a good opportunity, Retro Encounter is. And next, uh, Alex Frenicek. Yeah, hi everyone. Uh, my name is Alex Franicek, and I'm fairly new to, to RPG fan, but I've dabbled in a couple things so far, including features, uh, review, and uh, I d did a podcast already on, on Lost Odyssey with y'all. And um, yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I love this game. Uh, it's probably my favorite game of all time, just kind of like based on like my history with it and yeah. uh, kind of how much it meant to me playing it uh, when I was younger. Um, and uh yeah I, I recently wrote that uh final fantasy ranking that that i hope didn't uh didn't, didn't get too many people upset i mean it was wrong but like you know it was good <laughs> <laughs> just kidding sort of <laughs> final um, fantasy 15 rules i won't apologize yeah it's fine it's it's better than lost odyssey so we can all agree on that <laughs> <laughs> <Ooh>. ouch <laughs> it's true um and next up uh ben love yeah hi uh my name's ben love um so i've actually never played final fantasy 6 before playing it for this podcast so um this is a good experience for me um to finally uh get to experience what people have been talking about forever Perfect. um and i actually don't have a, a huge history with the final fantasy series in general um so uh it's really cool to kind of go back to earlier ones in the franchise and it makes me want to play the ones that i haven't played so awesome yeah i mean i when i we were gonna record this episode i was looking for somebody who had not played final fantasy 6 before and i was worried that everybody on staff had so honestly this is the best time for you to have never played final fantasy 6 so thank you ben <laughs> i really appreciate it um and are uh, a, I, I'm going to say you're a longtime listener, first time caller, Lucas Green. Hi, uh, glad to be here. Just joined up with RPG Fan a few months ago, and uh, Final Fantasy VI is pretty much my first RPG that really got me into them. So, long history with it, something I've always really enjoyed. Yeah, so, um, we have like a variety of experiences with Final Fantasy VI, and you know, Final Fantasy VI is sort of a remarkable game on so many fronts. Like it was obviously developed by Nobuo. I could talk Nobuo Amatsu, 
but it also like had so many other people working on it like the creator of kingdom hearts worked on it uh tetsuya takahashi of xenosaga and xenogears created the mechs in this game like it, it feels like we always talk about chrono trigger as an all-star team of rpgs but in a lot of ways i feel like final fantasy 6 does that as well while it's more square driven um it, it is a remarkable game um and i think for a lot of reasons and partially because of the talent that was working on it and how small that team was and how like that talent has gone on to do such incredible work um but before we get into talking about final fantasy 6 proper and everything that Final Fantasy VI is, um, I think I want to give some context for the listeners uh, just very quickly, and we'll try to keep it to like a minute or two about our history with the Final Fantasy series, our history with Final Fantasy VI specifically. We've kind of covered this a little bit, but I want to make sure everybody's sort of situated here um, in terms of listeners and uh, where we're coming from. So we'll start with uh, you, Alex. Um, we've heard that Final Fantasy VI is your favorite game of all time. Um, we know you've played them all. Um, but kind of give us a little bit of background on your history with the Final Fantasy series. Yeah, for sure. So uh, I grew up uh, youngest of three brothers, uh, both uh, like four years and eight older than me. And uh, so I grew up with the Super Nintendo and PlayStation predominantly as like my main entryway into video games. Um, and Final Fantasy VI was one that definitely stood out to me. I, I kind of experienced it. Um, as a spectator, uh, firstly, just before I could even really play video games well enough to, to progress far, I would watch my brothers playing it. And um, what really fascinated fascinated me about this game was not only that, like the the artwork, the sprite work was just uh, like uh, above any of the other ones that I, I was I saw them play, but also just um, kind of the the nuance around the characters um, is what really stuck out to me and yeah. made me. Um, appreciate video games as a as kind of like a, a narrative medium uh, a lot more than I had ever um, really thought about before. Um, like especially like because kind of we're only going to touch on sort of the first half of this game here, but um, first half of this game is very much kind of presenting uh, like a, a, a just a really well paced and structured JRPG with. A colorful cast of characters, mm-hmm. very much a lot of kind of Star Wars type <laughs> um, allusions uh, to like an evil empire. That, I've I mean, played Final we... Fantasy twelve, okay? Yeah, yeah. I mean, like that's just an, a whole other level. That's not illusion. That's uh, plagiarism. <laughs> I just, I agree. <laughs> um, but yeah, like having Biggs and Wedge obviously at the beginning is is a big one. But um, yeah, it just uh, introduced you to this like colorful cast of characters from different walks of life um and uh develop them in an interesting way and then kind of in this the second half of the game like kind of even develop them further kind of yeah. showed a lot more nuance behind their personalities yeah. and kind of like personal struggles and things like that that just was not in other video games uh, I, I agree just um it for that reason this game has has stuck in my heart forever and uh i've come back to it regularly yeah, I mean, you you touched on a lot of what I like about Final Fantasy VI there, and I'll I'll get into some of those things later. Um, but um, Lucy, what's your history with the Final Fantasy series at large, and also sort of Final Fantasy VI? So it's interesting because I came from a household that um, the only gaming system I ever had was a Game Boy uh, growing up, and my mother regretted that pretty quickly giving that to me. So I actually only saw Final Fantasy VI. Um, being played by a friend for a short period of time before 
well, into college, uh, I got back into gaming, got, uh, had a chance to actually get my hands on a copy of the game. And I started really, uh, I had seen other Final Fantasy games, but there were some things that just struck me about Final Fantasy VI, just that there isn't necessarily a singular character that is the sole driving force, that there's this yeah. wonderful cast of characters that all have their moment as the main character that really struck me. And so then um, I was uh, able to play a PSX version of the game. I got an original copy by sheer luck. Um, and I played it on my poor, dearly departed, uh, retrofitted PlayStation 3. Um, and learned very quickly that I have a temper when it comes to uh, things that require you to do things in a certain order or else it doesn't go your way. <laughs> uh, this game does do that. <laughs> but, at the, but at the same time, the fact that I stuck with it and kept going really told, uh, it tells about how much this game is such a driving force and such a wonderful, well-told story. And the fact that you don't have to do everything in order is such a wonderful diversion from some of the other Final yeah. Fantasy games. Mm -hmm. And uh, the fact that you can often go back to areas and go back and find new things or um, even, you know, if you leave a chest alone, it might turn into something better or you might never see that chest again. And you have to sort of weigh your options was mm -hmm. a new concept for me for gaming. And I was just like, I like this. <laughs> um I have played three versions of this game. I have played the PSX version. I have played the iOS version up until when it was broken uh, for a good portion because uh, Square Enix just gave up on iOS for a little while and they just stopped updating it and iOS updated and the game was broken. And I was like, well, guess I'm not finishing this. And then finally for this uh, podcast, I ended up getting the Pixel Remaster. And I was just like, oh my God, oh my God, I got to play Oh my god, I forgot how much I, I hate some of these parts. <laughs> I, I and... know you're talking about Zozo. Yeah, I understand. <laughs> <laughs> no, I like Zozo. Shut up. Uh, uh, uh. <laughs> Zozo's great with random encounters off. Really, really good time. I, I, I actually like to just find with random encounters off this time. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, Lucas, what's your history with the series and Final Fantasy VI specifically? So, like I said... Uh... Grew up, this was one of my first RPGs that I ever played, and definitely the one that it really I was most invested in. Um, uh, I remember renting it at Blockbuster when I was a kid, and uh, it was the one that I kept renting so that I could actually finish it. <laughs> so, no one uh, erased it at least. <laughs> at least nobody erased my save. Um, <laughs> That's good because that happened to me so many times. Uh, I have played it through many, many times, many, many versions. Uh, when I was in college, I would go through and uh, I found a bunch of different like fan translations. And uh, I've recently gone through a couple of the uh, more well-known ROM hacks for it, um, which uh, Final Fantasy XVI edition is uh, complicated. Uh, <laughs> And yeah, it's probably my my favorite Final Fantasy, one of my favorite games of all time. 
the the characters and story are great. I love the mechanical aspects of it as well. Um, as far as all the different Final Fantasies go, I think it's got kind of a good balance between the older style of Final Fantasy and the newer style. It's kind of like right on the the hinge in a lot of ways between those two. Yeah, um, I agree. Yeah, I mean, I think um, it's so much of the storytelling is is remarkable about it um, in terms of that, but also in terms of like it trying to press forward in the gameplay. And I think it's a really, a really good insight. Um, so, Ben, we know that you're a first time Final Fantasy VI player, um, but talk about um, your history with the series in general and also why now? <laughs> why have you played Final Fantasy VI before? <laughs> Um, so, uh, my history with the Final Fantasy series is kind of scattershot. Um, uh, the, the first Final Fantasy game I ever played was actually, uh, Final Fantasy 1 on the Dawn of Souls collection on the GBA. Um, and then I played Final Fantasy 2 on that as well. And then, um, I've played Final Fantasy 3, the DS version. Um, I've played Final Fantasy 5, um, on GBA. And then uh, the only other Final Fantasies I've played um, are 12. Um, that because is a, I'm a big fascinating history. Yeah. <laughs> it's so specific. And, and I, I can it. get into that in, in, a, in, a, in a second. Um, so I played 12 because I'm a huge uh, Yosumi Matsuno fan. Um, mm. So I had to play that. And then uh, I've also played 15, um, which I, I'm not a huge fan of. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you don't like, dude, where's my car? The Final Fantasy <laughs> edition? <laughs> so um, I guess one thing I'll say, uh, you might be able to tell from the Final Fantasy games that I have played, uh, is that I'm definitely much more of a mechanics and gameplay over story person. Um, and that definitely um, plays into how I feel about this game. Um, but uh, yeah, that's that's my history. So I'm I'm missing like a huge uh swath i know of the like final yeah. fantasy games that are very beloved so yeah it's interesting because um yeah and, and we'll talk about your, your thoughts in the gameplay which i'm really curious about um because like i feel like my personal ability to judge this game fairly is gone <laughs> <laughs> um like there's no way I, I i love this game like when i first got this game i got it on christmas day um on christmas day in the morning um and then i had to stay at my dad's all day you know what my dad didn't have? A Super Nintendo. Mm. Um, so like I was just sitting there and I was just like flipping through the book all day. Like when we said like the book, like games used to come with like these fairly detailed guidebooks, even in the Super Nintendo days. And I was just reading it. And like even now, I'm sure whoever owns it now, because I don't own it anymore. Long story. Um, it looks at it and like, who read this 700 times? And the answer is Zach, Zach Wilkerson. <laughs> um but like <laughs> to give that away, like I, I had been a member of like the Final Fantasy family for a long time before that. Like I started playing Final Fantasy during the NES era. My grandparents were really into it. They walked me through it. They would tell me what to do. And I played Final Fantasy. And then like the first time I saw them playing Final Fantasy 2, it was like my whole brain melted. <laughs> um, I was like, how does a game look this good? How is it this dramatic? How is it this good? Um, and I loved that. And then when Final Fantasy three finally came into my hands, I can't believe I had to wait 24 hours to play it. It was unacceptable. Um, but like I, I, I've been, uh, I've played every number numbered Final Fantasy except for 13, which I've started, but just haven't finished. And also 11, I guess. 
Um, so like I'm a huge Final Fantasy fan and so much of Final Fantasy, especially since six is driven by what six is and what it was um, that I, I, I think that my love for it is partially driven by that. Like for a long time, I would have said that Final Fantasy four was one of my absolute favorite Final Fantasy games. But I think that nowadays six surpasses it. And so like I, I, I'm a big fan of what it's doing. Um, so I, I love Final Fantasy VI. I especially love the second half of Final Fantasy VI. I think a lot of people mm. are like, they argue about which half is better. Like the first half is so well paced. The second half is very different, which we won't talk about until next time. But I, I'm a big fan of what it's doing. Um, so yeah, I mean, we, we were coming with all different kinds of experiences to this game. Um, and I, I think it's great. Um, but I, I also think that we can all agree the opening hour and a half of this game is fantastic <laughs> or maybe you won't ben i don't know um i will but, say i'm i'm sort of uh, upset that the new uh, pixel remasters does not have the glorious 3d animations they had for the playstation version oh yeah i forgot about that because i played this in the playstation version <laughs> and i totally forgot that was a thing i was sort of like going are they gonna have it are they gonna oh <laughs> yeah, i think those um, were think just in the wet. playstation version yeah, I think yeah. so. Wait, I, I mean, never played the PlayStation version. What exactly were those again? They made CGI mini movies for certain parts of the game. And so you got a little extra context of Kefka and Tara at the very beginning of the game. That whole idea of her having the slave crown mm. um, is actually... You get to see her and a close-up of her face in a relatively... Um, advanced cg model for the time um and you actually get to see the slave uh, crown on her head so you suddenly go oh that's what that was and since you can't really necessarily see it in the glorious joys of tiny little pixels on, um, on a crt screen it helps give a little extra detail into um the game I, I can't remember is that something you see before the game actually starts proper yes okay you That's see that before you see Biggs and Wedge and Tara. It's mm. been a long time since I've played the game, but I actually don't know that I like that. <laughs> um, because like I, I think that part of what makes the beginning of this game so powerful is that like we are so for context, everybody who's listening. So like this game is about um a lot of things, but it, it, it essentially there is an empire um that is trying to control the world to the use of what's called Magitech. And the reason and Magitech is mostly like machine driven magic for the most part, um, where they have harvested magic from a variety of sources that we'll talk about. Um, and they are sort of infusing them into machines to um, sort of take over the world <laughs> is sort of the impression that we're given. And um, as you're going through the game, you play as it's the beginning. You play as someone who has magic infused in them Terra, and we don't know why um but the first half of the game in particular is really like the classic like evil empire against like the small person um but the way the game opens is that you have Terra and two other people Biggs and Wedge and I believe this is the introduction if I'm not mistaken of Biggs and Wedge like the named characters um who are invading a town called Narsh who are trying to get their hands on what's called an esper, which in 
Final Fantasy parlance is basically a summon. Um, but we don't know why. We just know that they're there. We know that they're trying to get to it. And they are using these machines um, called Magitech that they are kind of writing to have the ability to overtake these people. Um, but like, we're not given any context when the game starts. Like, it's like, we're just there. We're, we're, we're in there. And it almost seems like from the very beginning that we are the bad guy. Um, and I think that's amazing. Like, I think it's fascinating. Like this idea that they are placing us in the space of like the capitalist bad guy, almost from the off. And as t- you're going through it and you're killing people with Terra, and then eventually you hit the Esper and Terra sort of realizes that maybe she's being controlled. Like we don't know that is the player. And I think that's kind of cool. What does everybody else think about the opening of this game? Oh, I think it's just, uh, yeah, the, the idea that we're not really totally understanding what's going on is a really interesting uh, point to make because, I mean, at the same time, like, Tara doesn't know what's going on. Uh, she's very much, like, being controlled and we're being, like, introduced to this character and kind of, like, put in, literally put into the shoes of this character. Um, and, like, what we're doing clearly seems vaguely bad. Like, we're in these pretty scary-looking machines we're killing uh, citizens and dogs uh, with giant lasers, and um... I played The Last of Us Part Two. I'm, I'm familiar with killing <laughs> dogs. Okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Final Fantasy VI did it first. Like I that. know, right? <laughs> um, and yeah, like it, it seems like it's clearly like alluding to the fact that we're we're the baddies here, but it's not like completely clear. And uh, like even thinking back to when I was like first playing it. Uh, I didn't really like understand the context and um, like even returning to it now, like, yeah, that that's like a, almost, it seems like a purposeful decision that um, adds a lot to the narrative intrigue of the beginning. Well, it's, an, it's also an interesting parallel, I think, because you get, you end up thinking, you realize that Tara is not completely innocent for all that she is, she is ignorant of. And none of the characters, you sort of get the feeling are completely innocent. There's mm. some they they've got all got their flaws for a variety of reasons and it's a really nice setup to sort of introduce the fact that you can still be somebody who's good even if you have a flawed background. Yeah, I was going to say it, I had never really considered that from the that context perspective, but the fact that you go like you're presented as the bad guys right off the bat, but then you like the first other character you're introduced to is Locke, who, in the introduction especially, you're like told he's a thief, and that right. you're vaguely told, well, maybe we can use Terra. So, I guess they kind of keep it vague as far as who the good guys are. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know because you get to name him, but. <laughs> oh, trust me, I got very close to naming Locky Dippy. <laughs> I think it's interesting that you bring that up, too, because, like, at the time, like, this is a person who's played RPGs a long time, even before this game came out. Like, that that wasn't something that we really engaged with, um, mm-hmm. this idea of morally gray characters. And I, I don't think that most of the characters in this game are really morally gray. Like they, They're no. presented as, like, vaguely morally gray, like maybe Shadow. But, like, for the most part, like, we know they're good people. Um, but, like... It it presents characters as they are, and it's like the beginning of like 
RPGs maturing as a storytelling medium. And I think that's really important. Um, and I, I don't think I've ever really thought about it that way before. Yeah. Um, I think, um, you know, definitely like the, the first thing that I noticed was that the characters are named Biggs and Wedge. And I was like, oh, this is like Star Wars. <laughs> it's just the Star Wars reference like immediately hit me. And I'm like, okay, so there's the Empire and they're bad. And then uh, as soon as Locke gets introduced, I'm like, oh, he's like, Han Solo or whatever you know and these are the rebels and okay um you know I think I do agree that the the choice to have um you know the player begin and kind of be like in the role of the villain um is an interesting one and you know I didn't really know a lot about the intro going in so I was like okay we're like some people and we're walking you know, along the snowy plain or whatever to this town. And it's not really very clear what's like truly going on. Um, and so I think that was kind of an interesting choice. I do think it's kind of like almost a pretty quickly undercut though, because like Biggs or one of them uh, mentions that she has a slave crown or on um, like, like in that section, like once you've gone through a little bit of the town. And so I think from that point, you're like, oh, well, they're definitely like, bad <laughs> they put it they put a, a like a slave yeah, device true. on this woman there they're, yeah, they're yeah, probably evil slave crown, yeah. i yeah. guess that's probably bad yeah so um but i do think you're right at like that very opening scene where they approach narsh and then you're fighting people and even i think the design of the um the soldiers or um warriors that you fight in narsh is kind of ambiguous um they kind of have a design that might look like a typical um like rpg enemy oh, um and so it, it's not really you know i i do, I do think they they keep that ambiguity for, for a little bit but it gets almost immediately like um I feel like, like it's undercut. cold here so that's why they look like that <laughs> yeah i mean and that makes sense like it, it makes yeah. sense for sure it's just like when you have no context for what the world is um i, I do think that that is like effective um but as soon as Locke is introduced and as soon as, you know, they start talking about the slave crown and going after the Esper, uh, it's, uh, you know, it's like, oh, okay, I know what's, what's happening here. Um, but uh, I did, one thing I do think is interesting is um, you can see how, like, uh, Breath of Fire 3 <laughs> takes, like, a ton from this opening. It's, like, almost, it's, like, a very similar Oh, my goodness. Um, I have never thought about that before. Yeah. <laughs> it's, like, it's, like, almost beat for beat. Like, I mean, not exactly... But it's very similar, um, which which I found to be pretty interesting. So it's kind of cool to see, um, you know, where they some of the other games that I have played that came after have uh, referenced the start yeah. of the game. Yeah, towards your point where like it's almost like easy to mistake the like the Narsh uh, citizens for for bad people. I feel like that's like like very much reflected in just like how it's presented like when mm -hmm. like they attack us and we go into the actual combat screen they're not like represented like the the party members where they just have like their sprites like facing sideways they have like that kind of more uh elaborate design that like only like the bad monsters have like i feel like if they um made it that like you're f literally fighting like the little pixelated sprites then that would kind of give off more of the vibe that uh they might why be is, good, but why is like, everybody they're so kind of coded as monsters through the mm -hmm. illustration. Yeah, and you and you really only see like these guys who are clearly like outfitted as warriors with like attack dogs and <laughs> and stuff. So it's not you know it it would be really different if if they were like civilians and they're mm -hmm. maybe trying to run away or something. 
So, um, but I think it's it, what they did was good if they, you know, as far as trying to keep that ambiguity. So, yeah, I mean, I think that that's an interesting point. I've never thought about it before. Um, you know, in it, when I think about the opening, I, I always just think about like the Magitech walking through the snow forward um, as like a version of Terra's theme plays over it. Um, and I think it's just like beautiful and it gets to like that tone this game sets. And I think it is really fascinating. Um, it, it, what's interesting is that, like, I feel like the tone the game sets in that opener does not really get paid off until the second half of the game. Um, because it feels like a very obvious, like, um, we're uh, killing the empire. So, like, a a as you guys mentioned, like, um, Terra is there, and then, like, Locke shows up, and we find out about the Returners, and we find out about the Empire. We find out they're bad, and Terra's being controlled for the Empire, and Locke is a thief for the Empire, and or not the Empire, for the Returners. <laughs> Um, he's a gentleman adventurer thank you very much indeed he is indeed he is um and um he helps tara sort of move away sort of with the notion that she is maybe going to be the thing that helps push against the empire because the thing that i don't think we've mentioned that's important about tara is that she can use magic without the magitech um and that sort of gives her an air of mystery um, and that moves us sort of out of Narsh and then into Figaro, uh, which is a kingdom sort of to the south of Narsh, which is hypothetically a um, an ally of the Empire. Uh, we discover very quickly that that is not, in fact, the truth. Um, but I, I always think that this section with Figaro is actually where the game sort of like creates its sense of humor to some degree because one of the things that i think is missing and one of the, our previous our very recent previous episodes thing i think it's missing about lost odyssey is its sense of humor <laughs> um and whatever you'll say about edgar I, I think that it is um it sets up like sort of this ridiculous dynamic uh of edgar sort of being like this doofus king ladies man but also was like a technological genius um, and I feel like Final Fantasy really did that really well in its early years. Um, so, um, well, he's a ladies' man. He's a ladies' man, but he nobody actually takes him seriously. Exactly, and I think that's I think that's really interesting. Um, and I think this game does so well with like its tonal disparity. Um, but yeah, I mean, we also get some combat at that point. I want to talk more about combat maybe later. But like, um. Uh, and also Kefka gets introduced at this point, right? Like where he's Anakin Skywalker and he hates <laughs> sand. And Lucy made this joke in chat. Like, uh, it took like a whole day to get, get it. Uh, but it works really well it, with the idea totally of that uh, this is the empire, just as, um, yeah. we were talking about it being like star Wars. He's the Anakin Skywalker of this empire. <laughs> um, and he Except hates for nobody ever <laughs> smacks him down. Yeah. <laughs> So what yeah. do you guys think of like this whole Figaro introduction, beginning of the combat? What do you guys think about that? And also Kefka, Kefka's introduction. Yeah. So uh, Zach, you mentioned the, um, the change in tone and like the, the focus um, on humor that the game has. And that was something that having not a lot of knowledge, just maybe the major points of Final Fantasy VI going in that I was really surprised by is um, how much humor is in this game. Like, it's a very, it's a very silly game like 
for a lot of its um, runtime, especially in this first half. Like um, you, you mentioned Edgar being a, a doofus, but I kind of think like every male character in this game is a bit of a doofus, um, which isn't necessarily bad. Like it's there's a lot of really funny moments that come from on that, and the game um, really does a, a good job of like giving um a lot of the male characters like these really goofy kind of self-deprecating um, moments and that really does start with with like edgar and in figaro um so yeah it's, it's just something that i was really like surprised by going in because i didn't expect it yeah i definitely uh agree with that and you know when I, I think back to this game i always think about like kind of like it's more nuanced narrative it's more uh, developed characters and things like that, but at the same time that it's doing these things, it's also yeah, just kind of being like really silly and presenting us these ridiculous situations. Like even when we have to kind of protect Terra from getting recaptured by the Empire when we're still in Narsh, like we end up teaming up with all these fluffy little Moogle creatures <laughs> and have like a Moogle army and battle against. I love the that Empire this was like America's that. introduction to the Moogles. Yeah. The <laughs> Like we didn't know what they were, what they were. I was like, "What the, f- what the, what the heck is this?" <laughs> uh, exactly, exactly. Yeah, I think it's excellent. got like a, a really decked out army because all of them have like different weapons and things too. It's just like it's really funny. But and, you can uh, take from them too. Wait, really? To. Yes. Oh. Only, Ooh. only. You, oh, yeah. you just unequip them at the end of that that segment. I, I steal from right Moogles before. regularly. Oh my god. I did yeah, not know it's, this. That's it's awesome. just Mog, but it's awesome. And it's you get a spear way earlier than you're supposed to if you take it from him. Ah, and then you could give it to Edgar. Nice, nice. So Learning it's also, more about this game every day. This is the, the other interesting thing is, is by Figaro, you figured out that every single character in this game has a different form of gameplay. That's true. Uh, we can talk yeah. about that now. I mean, like, I think that... um. Later in the game, you eventually get like espers, and the espers will give you the ability to use magic. Um, and we'll get to like what they are story wise later. But I think that um, one of the things that I think is interesting about this game is that it gives every character like the ability to use one extra ability. So, for example, with Edgar, it's his tools, so he gets to use a chainsaw. Uh, we haven't talked about Sabin yet, but that's Edgar's brother, and he gets to use a blitz, which in the original version, like you had to like very carefully put in um a certain almost like fighting game technique to get him to do the thing. Uh whereas now it's like literally just it's spelled like, out for you now, which is spelled so out. Thank- I'm so thankful. Which I actually for. don't like at all. I'm like, yeah, look, in my I fighting games, that's not spelled that. out for me. Um, <laughs> Let me do a Hadouken, damn it. Right, exactly. I, I don't like it at all. I think it makes the game too easy, which we'll talk about. But um, it, it it gives you an ability, but it also gives you magic on top of that. But it also gives like different stats. Like I feel like when you get to Final Fantasy VII, like it's like, oh, every character does the exact same thing over and over again. The answer is cast this spell, mimic it, do Knights of the Round 17 times in a row, you win against Superboss. Whereas here, you get all these abilities. And I feel like in the world of balance, and there are lots of things I prefer about the second half of the game, but in this half of the game, I feel like they do a great job of balancing the combat around the abilities that are specific to the character with the abilities that the character can also learn. So I think it's awesome. At the beginning of the game, magic is what makes Terra special. 
But once you gain the ability for other characters to use magic, they give Terra another ability at that point as well. So she now has a little bit more that she can do. And she so becomes it, the most epic character by far. Yes. <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> yeah, and it's very appropriate that her ability just makes her magic better because like, she's the one that, that had it to begin with, right? But exactly. I feel like I'm going to keep coming back to this, but like, just like the the fact that these little uh, character unique moves are like just tied to their characterization and, and tell us more about them. I feel like that's another thing that really stuck out to me about like how much this game, especially for its time, but even today, like managed to make these all these characters feel like individuals with their own history. And, you know, Locke, Locke can protest that he's a treasure hunter and adventurer all he wants, but that move is steel. His his character <laughs> move is steel, so we, we know he's been doing some thieving. He's um, the only one who could use the thief's bracer uh, amu- uh, relic. So it's sort of like, mm-hmm, dude, mm-hmm. you could protest as much as you want, but... The thief doth protest too much, methinks. That um, merchant's clothing was clearly treasure. <laughs> oh god the merchant uh, the, the the merchant's clothing that was one of the annoying bugs of the original game that pissed me off so much and why part i i love Locke now but i have had a complicated history with him because original in the original SNES and uh playstation games when you switched to the thief's clothing he dropped everything he was nude, except for the uh, merchant's clothing. So you'd go into a fight and you'd be like, oh, wait. I, you wouldn't have any of his um, equipment, anything equipped. And you'd have to go back and put it back on every single time he changed into a different outfit. Right, right. Yeah, that's definitely a good change. A lot of, like, uh, I don't agree with all the changes they made, but a lot of them definitely... Uh... Yeah. support the experience nicely well, and the other ch- uh, big change is, is that for the original playstation and SNES version evade didn't work evade uh you could up the stat as much as you wanted but it wouldn't do anything which <laughs> like made magic a- evasion yeah yeah right, magic right. no evasion or magic evasion didn't work so yep. it made any of those items completely useless and it made characters like Locke who were supposed to have a relatively high evasion um not as preferable in certain situations true yeah, the the blind status which is also tied to evasion completely didn't work in the original yep yeah um, i wish it didn't work in the pixel remaster either because it's definitely made things more difficult for me more often than i'd like <laughs> just got to buy some silver goggles <laughs> i know I, I still like that they didn't fix the fact that if a character um, ha- uh, gets flipped the other way, they he looks like they're wearing uh, sunglasses on the back of their head because it doesn't fit with them. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> it's it's a fashion statement, okay? Yes. <laughs> ben, what do you think about the combat uh, as, as a person who's sort of new to this? Um. Yeah. So uh, I will preface this by saying that I am I am not a fan of the traditional like. Um, Final Fantasy mainline Final Fantasy like ATB system. Um I, I think that it doesn't really offer much advantages or improvements over like a pure turn based system. And for me personally I just find it kind of like annoying. <laughs> um so um you know and that's like a per, you know that's kind of a personal thing but 
um, and there's some ATV systems that are that are um, good, but I, I these kind of games, and even Final Fantasy V to a degree, um, they just don't like. I, I don't think they make the most of like the concept really. Um, so so that's that's you know a, a thing for me. I think the game would probably be more fun if if it was just like turn based, um, but like pure turn based and not the active um, uh, ATB part, but. Um, other than that, I found the game like very um, like mechanically shallow um, in a way that um, you know I just you know doesn't really appeal to me in terms of the combat. Um, not that like I think it's true like you guys are all talking about how the unique skills that each character have give them um, like their own kind of feel and personality, and I think that's very true. Um, but I don't find the game to be very well balanced around those skills. Like, um, especially like Sabin in particular, he kind of just like breaks the game. <laughs> um, like he's so yeah, strong and he, he can just destroy everything. Terra's magic is really strong even before um, she gets the trance ability. Mm-hmm. Um, even um, like Edgar's like abilities are all pretty strong. Um, and there's never like, at least at this point I'm at in the game now, there's never been a point where I really felt like um, I needed to like plan or strategize or really Mm -hmm. think about what I was doing too much in combat. Um, And for me, that's like a big Mm -hmm. uh, negative of the game. I think. I think that's actually really fair. Yeah, I agree. Like this has never been like the most balanced game. I know they, they tried to balance some things out for the pixel remaster and I think they did a decent job at it, but um yeah, despite like all of my love for for Final Fantasy VI, like the actual like mechanics, how they interact with each other, um, like it, it doesn't feel like the most balanced game. You can auto crossbow your way through the the first few hours of the game, no problem, <laughs> yep. without paying attention <laughs> to anything else. Um, but I I will say about like the ATB, I have never enjoyed atb so much as, as playing this game on on very fast i turned up the battle speed just because i'm like I, i've played this game like so many times like let's make it interesting and like flipping through my menus especially once i get magic and just have more like options to flip through and trying to like get the right thing selected before i just get like blasted by and like countless enemy attacks like that that turned it menu navigation into like devil may cry level <laughs> excitement almost. <laughs> yeah i mean I, I i think that your your criticism is totally fair ben like I, I i love this game but like as i'm playing through it like and i was complaining to my partner early on like i was like oh my gosh they somehow managed to make this game even easier and this game is already really easy to begin with um but i think that um I guess for me, like, even though, like, the combat is really easy, like, when I was a kid, like, I found some of these areas really difficult, which we'll get to in a second here. Um, but, like, now, like, the the notion that, like, when you split and, like, you're trying to fight Kefka in Narsh, like, that is, like, not a challenging portion, even slightly. Um, but I think that... Um, I, I appreciate that they tried and also like RPGs at the time were either like insanely easy or like stupidly hard. Like, I don't know, seventh saga, for example, um, <laughs> as being like stupidly hard. But yeah, I mean, like, I think that and like kind of like skipping ahead here, like, so like we're with 
Tara, we're with Edgar, and then eventually, I think this moment is awesome. Like that they have Figaro like literally go under the sand, um, to avoid Kefka, um, and like they're able to then, um, escape down south to then go basically like try to get to the Returner hangout, but also like recruit Sabin. Um, and we're also introduced to Kefka here, which I think is like a, an interesting. We've seen him in a cutscene very briefly before, but like we also are introduced to him in a cutscene where he talks about how much he hates sand being on his boots, and he forces one of his underlings to clean it off. And like those of you who haven't played Final Fantasy VI, um, Kefka is a general for the Empire, um, and he is really the big bad of this game. He's certainly the most famous character from this game um and uh, i think it's interesting but then we go get sabin and, and, and sabin in combat is really interesting but also kefka is really interesting so like in terms of that sequence like we're talking about like figaro disappearing through that through that cave through meeting sabin who then has to fight his master's son what are some things that stick out to you guys about that um, yeah, so I found that section like the the part where the castle goes in uh, under the sand, or and they like they like jump off the castle and land on the chocobos or whatever is like really cool. And then the castle goes under the sand, like that's all really neat. I found the like part where they're on the mountain and they're trying to go get um, Sabin like very strange. Like you're you're kind of told, oh, there's this guy who's his what's, his name's Duncan, is that right? The master? Yeah, Duncan yeah. the master. Yep. Yeah, they're like, so people are talking about Duncan the master in the town, and then you like you like go to there and then you like quickly find out that he's like dead. And and you're like, okay. And then <laughs> you like going through and there's like somebody following you in the um, is the person following you that's the son, right? Is that yeah, right? Yeah, it it's the son, yeah. uh, Duncan's son. Yeah. And I have to admit, this it, part of the game felt really rushed to me. Yes, yeah, yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, like, I'm like, okay, I don't really have any context for who Duncan is. And then I guess it, like, you, you get, I mean, you figure, okay, it's Sabin's teacher, right? And, but there's no, it's just so odd. I'm like, am I supposed to care get, about this guy uh, being dead? Get, I don't even know. You get more about Sabin's love of tea. Yeah. Exploring his house than you do about Duncan and his whole mastery. Uh aspect of the industry it really felt tacked on and really rushed and yes. you're sort of just like why do I, do I care about this dude okay let me just beat him and get it over with but it's not it, yeah it, yeah I feel like Sabin could have just been on the mountain like meditating and it would have the same like effect on the narrative and his yeah. character like I, it, yeah yeah I think one of the things that it kind of does throughout um and this is a good example of that is they do have a lot of these moments where it tries to like foreshadow things like it does talk about Duncan in town or it does talk about Sabin when you're back at the castle and they talk about like Sabin and Edgar's relationship. But some of those are hidden like you if you didn't talk to the right person, you're just going to completely miss a piece. And or later on, like if you don't take the right characters to the right towns at the right time. Like you don't get the conversations or flashbacks or dream sequences. Mm -hmm. I do think that is kind of an interesting aspect of the game and kind of like the, 
especially when you're heading to like Zozo as your des destination when you're going for Sarah or uh, Terra, sorry. Um, and uh, yeah, you can like miss a couple things. There's some scenes that are only available with like Locke and Edgar. There's one that's like, uh, or sorry, Edgar and Sabin. And then there's one that's like with Locke, and that you get like a little bit more interaction with Celeste. I, I think it adds to the the replay value and just like has like more secrets. Uh, mm -hmm. like narrative secrets kind of I, I think that's a neat idea uh, and especially because this is a game where there is supposedly no like real main character so kind of incentivizes you to, to try out different party compositions in a way but I, I definitely agree that I, I think the, the passage from like when you get out of Figaro to when you recruit Savin is, is easily the, the weakest uh, portion of the, the world of balance. Yeah I mean I, I don't disagree with that. Um... But I do think that leads us to what I think is one of the things that makes the game most unique, um, which is where we get to the returner hideout and then you meet the returner hideout lead Bannon. Um, and he's like, hey, you should join us. And you're supposed to say no, because then you can go get the Genji glove, which is one of the most powerful accessories in the first half of the game, um, which uh, I, I, I think that like one of the things I like about this game is that like it hides some of its lore in like you talking to people around town. It's not like previous RPGs, really, where it's like if you want to know how to progress, you better talk to everybody. That is not true here, but it is like if you want to get all the good stuff, you have to do like some weird stuff. Um, like it, but it, it, it feels like it's would, playing around. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I would no, no. I would just point out that if you're playing from another perspective where you're not necessarily going for the best stuff first, but you're going for a complete uh, completionist, because this game does have a bestiary and a um uh, a way of uh, getting a completionist of like getting all this uh possible uh, items in the game um if you say yes first you get the gauntlet which you can only get in one of two places in this game mm -hmm. and both are completely missable mm -hmm. um so so it's one of these like yes the genji glove is far superior but at the same time you've got to make this choice okay do you want to make this easy or do you want to uh you know <laughs> go for a completionist and you're sort of like what? yeah Mm. I mean, I think the game design is really interesting on that front. Like it, it, it feels like it rewards replaying in a way that games nowadays don't. Like it's like you have to just play through the game as it is and like explore everything and see everything in a way that we don't nowadays. And I think that's really interesting. But I think the most interesting thing here is the split. So like when you get to the Returner Hideout, eventually Tara will agree to join the returners and then you go plop down onto a, map, a, a river to like go float towards Narsh or wherever the heck you're supposed to actually go. I can't remember. <laughs> um, and at that point they're just then, trying to escape. Yeah, exactly. Um, and you eventually face Ultros who is a classic final fantasy <laughs> villain. He's delightful. You get split into three different, um sort of scenarios like it's like hey you can play as sabin over here you can play as Terra over here you can play as Locke. boo that scenario sucks uh, over here um and so like i feel like that is at the time it felt like such a unique way of playing rpgs um but like i, I guess i'm curious like which one of these scenarios was your favorite oh hands down it's 
Uh, I'm saying, gonna say hands down the Phantom Forest. Yes, That's my yes. favorite. Sabin, Sabin. You get to suplex a train for God's <laughs> sake. <laughs> and you get to help uh, a new new companion go through some trauma. Yeah, I find it interesting they let you pick between the three paths because they're they're really like not equivalent at all. Like it's not really three paths. It's like two people do like one, two groups do like one thing, and then you spend like three or four hours with Saban. <laughs> um, which is interesting. Um, I mean, I think it's cool to show them from different perspectives and like what they're doing. Um, but it just, you know, it just so happens that what Saban's doing is like a lot more. Um, and obviously like the most interesting because of that. Um, but uh, yeah, it's just like, I, I expected when there was that choice, like, oh, these are going to be like, you know, they're going to be like equivalent in length and like the same, you know, have a lot, each have a lot to them. And I was really surprised by the fact that only two of them uh, or only one of them was really like significantly lengthy, and the other two were very short. And you do get a bunch of new characters, and but Sabins, you get two new characters. You get um, Cyan, and you get Gao, who mm-hmm. is one of the characters. My first playthrough, I just didn't do anything with. I didn't really understand the mechanics behind him. I, I it uh, I got frustrated with the belt because you fight all these monsters and you don't get any experience out of it. So as a first time player, it was sort of like, eh, this doesn't, I feel like I'm not getting rewarded. And this time around, I spent a lot more time with Gao and he by the uh, floating continent was my, by far my strongest character. Cause did you get the stray all- cat? I got the stray cat. If you got the stray cat, then he's the most broken character in the game for at least the <laughs> yeah, first two thirds. <laughs> yeah, yep. Stray, stray cat, uh, chimera, and the intangir. Um, just basically, yeah, they completely break the game. Yep. Um, up until the floating continent. The game's when, easy enough as it is, but oh my. Yeah. <laughs> it just and the lesser lopos, lopros, um, with its uh fireball. Just basically raiding yep. fire down on all your enemies. Yes! And, and turning Gao into a magic tech armor is pretty awesome, too. Just shooting lasers out of <laughs> yeah. his little body. <laughs> Gao has always been my least favorite character. He is always the one I put on the bench. I totally agree. He's really good. But I don't understand why he's there or what he adds to the game or the story at all. <laughs> You know what, Lucas? I I agree. I I never like, despite Gao's brokenness, I'll, I'll never put him in my party just because like it feel he feels so narratively insignificant. Like I just I just can't get with it. You know? Yeah, I did appreciate him like messing with with Savin at the um w- when they're in the cave and like trying to like what is he he like does he like try to put oh he takes his like money and like throws it in the pit or whatever <laughs> so good yeah, yeah. That good. that's that so final good. fantasy 6 yes it's very funny and when that happened i was like what is going on like I, I was so like surprised um even though the game had a lot of like silly moments up until that point i was still like did, did that really just happen like this kid is just pranking him but um yeah that he's like he's definitely funny he's definitely like a really you know funny comedic kind of character um, so he's, I feel like he's worth it just for for that aspect of him, Mister Thou. Oh yeah, um, yeah, that part's funny too. <laughs> yeah, it's really funny when Mister Thou's whole town. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that's no, true. We no, didn't. No. We didn't Mr. really talk Thou about is, Cyan. 
Mr. Th- uh, Thou is Saban. It's uh, Cyan is just um, Cyan. Ms. Uh, Gao calls Saban uh, Mr. Thou. Oh, that's which, right. Yeah. Which up until that point, Saban was sort of the uh, the very like, I'll take it, anything that comes my way. And then he gets pissed off about this. And it's sort of just like, ah, there's your, your the start of your chink in the armor. Because um, <laughs> everybody in this game delightfully has their moment of being the straight man to somebody else's joke. That's a really good way of putting it. Like everybody has their opportunity. And I think it's actually one of the things that makes this game work so well. Like that, like everybody has the opportunity to be the straight man to someone else's joke. And like, like everybody is going to be the butt of someone else's joke. And I think it's part of what makes this very quick narrative, especially in the first half, mostly work. But like, I want to very quickly, I I don't want to talk too long about like these split paths because locks is like, Hey, go dress like this other person and go dress like this other person. And it's like so boring and bad. Um, (laughs) And like Tara's is very simple and short, but like, I think that the moment that we recruit Cyan or Cayenne or however you want to pronounce it, I don't care. Um, The moment at Doma um, where Kefka who is a phenomenal villain, like a phenomenal villain, um, poisons the river to Doma and like the level of evil that is. And also the fact that other members of the empire don't agree with it, like gets to like this like small moment of like, Hey, maybe there are like, it's not just good and evil, which is definitely not something that final fantasy had done previously, but also like the level of evil that Kefka is is so fascinating and i think he is a fantastic villain agreed that is the moment that makes kefka as bad as he is like he does a lot of bad things but to me doma and that moment with cyan running to go try and see his family to try and save them is one of the most heartbreaking moments and the one that really makes you hate Kafka. Yeah, and the fact that he's just deriving pure pleasure from it and you get that like 16-bit laugh laughter going on like it's If they ever HD 2D this game they better keep that. <laughs> yeah, it's just such a brilliant soundbite just just haunting especially when when playing in, in such a, a tragic moment. Well, and it also plays into uh, the phantom forest when you're on the train you're given you know you're working towards trying to stop the train and you sort of think well if i stop the train does that save everybody and then you still get that moment where you see the entirety of doma get on that train and there's no stopping in and it keeps going and you're left behind it really hints to like how awful and how horrible Kefka truly is mm-hmm. that he does he, th- he thinks of this all as a game and he's giggling and laughing as people are dying in front of him yeah and for all the game's silliness like just just that moment where the the ghost train departs with all the the domains um and you're kind of just put back in uh the shoes of, of Sabin and Cyan's just kind of standing there at the edge like just with his his head bowed, and if you talk to him, he doesn't say anything. If you talk to Shadow, he says, like, just best leave him alone. And it's just, like, this incredibly uh, poetic and contemplative moment that you can just kind of sit with until you're ready to leave. 
And I think just having that little micro interaction in there uh, for the player's part is just like just like a, a brilliant little uh, thing of narrative design that that just encompasses so much of what makes this game so interesting to me. Yeah, and one one thing I like you guys are talking about like Kefka and his like effectiveness as a villain. Um, one thing I like about the portrayal of Kefka is that he's like very much like a, a coward and like kind of a like a sniveling little weasel of a man. Like he's very there's there maybe he's not the most like you know complicated or morally gray character, but they did a really good job of like a guy who has a has some power and just like gets the most obscene pleasure out of lording that mm-hmm. power over other people. <laughs> yeah. And like he's and I feel like that is like pretty accurate to, you know, the kinds of people who misuse their power in, in real life. Yeah. Um and so Elon that's... Musk would love Kefka. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't even care if you like Elon Musk. Stop listening. Continue. <laughs> oh, yeah, you have say... a Twitter spaces about like how Kefka is really the good guy. Or yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. He invented Tesla, so he's yeah. fine. <laughs> but yeah, he's he's just very like he's it's 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 almost like it makes me think of um uh, in two and you have um Yes. Yes, who who is very, I think, clearly like a character kind of patterned after Kefka. Mm-hmm. Um but I prefer kefka's portrayal because there is a bit of like you could see um and got his his name is uh is like escaping me at the moment of the villain luca blight. blight luca blight yes thank you um like you could almost see him as like intimidating and maybe some people would see him as like maybe impressive because he's so like of an uh, uh, opposing force and he's so strong and like even though he's like crazy and evil and stuff um, people might get some kind of warped sense of admiration for aspects of him. But with Kefka, there's really nothing to admire. He's so just like pathetic and gross. <laughs> um, and that's something I appreciate about the portrayal for sure. Yeah, and it's interesting even picking up on on some of the, the flavor text you can get, especially when you're like in and around the Empire and you get a, a chance to talk to like some of the guards um, that like they all just like hate Kefka, mm-hmm. like despite like Kefka very much just being on their side, being their general, their superior, and and leading them, like nobody likes him personally. They all just think he's like kind of weird, and they don't really want anything to do with him. And then you also like like despite Kefka's fairly one dimensional portrayal, you also find out that he's been like experimented on. Like he was the first like Magitek knight that uh, Sid helped create yeah. and um that's what caused him to go he's mad. just like yeah, yeah he's just like this failed experiment that doesn't excuse like any of the things he's done but it's just like oh my god like that this creation like this isn't just like a creation by like an individual this is like a creation by like a, a, a screwed up system and he makes a really interesting uh foil then for celeste mm-hmm. because celeste was very much the same thing um and celeste you know, took her job. It took the burden and the uh, the pain and the horror of being a Magitek knight, and tried to do good with it, even as being a general for the empire. And Kefka just leaned into, well, um, they did this to me, so I can do whatever the f- uh, uh, whatever I want. I do think it's interesting that, despite how much everybody hates him despite how much 
everybody else trashes him, the emperor keeps letting him do what he wants. Like, even going so far as to, like, let him out later and, like, go along with his plan. Like, betraying you, basically. Clearly, Kefka is at least manipulative enough to be on his good side or has something over him or I'm not sure. I but think, you um, I, and I'll use a choke about here. I think that Ep the emperor views Kefka as his get done guy. Yeah. Um, like, like he has no moral qualms, even outside of the emperor, uh, which we'll talk about, I guess, towards the end here. But like, he, like, I, I don't want to get too political here, but um, in the same way that like any dictator will find somebody who can say like, hey, go do my thing and go get it done. Um, and I think that makes like Kefka more pathetic at the beginning. Like, I think a lot of times we forget that he's a general, but he is like he has he is a person who has power even though he's ridiculous and wants sand wiped off his shoe. Um, and I think that makes him like seem more pathetic to us, but it also is what allows him to sort of worm her, his way into being like the big bad of this game. Yeah. It's like the, the emperor is just kind of using him to like do his most like dirty deeds. And like, clearly like Kefka's like, a little crazy from those experiments and so he's just really just being like exploited by the emperor and and it really makes um when we get to that point of the game where it seems like the emperor is willing to make good i guess just like keeping around kefka i mean i guess he does lock up kefka and that's kind of like supposed to be like a show of him like kind of trying yeah. to take this more morally superior road so that's a really interesting detail to put in there um yeah. but yeah ultimately like he's just using kefka as a tool but like towards the end of, of the world of balance section like i mean jokes on him kefka has his own thoughts going on <laughs> well and it's an interesting sort of uh you've got these two very different generals you've got general leo who all of the soldiers uh, really look up to and really support who's still doing what the empire says and then you've got kefka Mm -hmm. And so you that helps when you get to that um, part of the game where you've got the Empire and you're sort of going, should we be trusting this guy? And you have to go, well, he did lock up Kefka and he's got General Leo. Maybe he is being able to turn over relief. And it, the first playthrough of this game, when you get to that point, you, you really have this uncertainty mm -hmm. because of those two diametrically opposed generals on either side of him. Yeah. Yeah. And I think Leo, too, serves, like, an interesting uh, role in, in showing the player, like, even though Kefka is, like, really ridiculous and kind of weird, that he's, like, clearly the most effective because you you kind of, like, like, they show you the initial siege and, like, Cyan just, like, destroying the, the enemy captain or whatever, right? And you kind of get the feeling that this siege has been going on, like, a long time and this has happened, like, multiple times. And then, of course, when Kefka comes and is able to take over, you know, he immediately solves the problem in the most horrible way possible. But he's clearly very effective because he has no 
like moral qualms and so like i feel like that moment's really like shows you why he has the position that he has even if he's so contemptible otherwise yeah i mean i and i think that gets to um and we're gonna fast forward a little bit here because we're running a little bit long on time but i i think that gets to the way this whole game is set up right like it's Kefka is like this diametric force that sort of exists on the Empire, but you have all these characters who are involved in the Empire to some degree. And at this point, I think we have 12 or 13 main characters. And so, like, even though Terra, I think, especially in the world of balance, is especially meant to be our our protagonist. Like, at, at the end of that split she become we realize that she is half esper and you get this like beautiful flashback maybe it's a little bit later where you like meet tara's parents and you realize that she is in fact an esper uh where all the magic of this world is coming from and the empire is trying to steal it from them um and so it but it i i think that this game does such a good job of creating all these different dynamics and i think it actually gets way stronger in the second half but i think in the first half the place where the dynamics in this game are strongest i'm just to kind of hone in on a famous moment for a second here is the opera house Hmm. where like when we're trying to get to vector we realize hey like we need to go to the empire we need to deal with this and get to the espers because like we've met an esper we realize they're not dealing with it correctly and we need to deal with it in a different way. We need to travel there. And in order to get there, we need an airship. And the only person in this entire world who owns an airship is this dude named Setzer, who is obsessed with this girl who is an opera singer and he's trying to kidnap her during the opera house scene because she's an opera singer. Maria. Yeah. Um, and so then we get into what I think is maybe the most unique sequence of this whole game, at least now. I think the world world of ruin was more unique back in '94 when this game came out. Um, where you have C- Celeste impersonating someone because she looks like Maria, and in the pixel remaster version, which I think we're all playing, it goes like HD 2D. And it's so cool. And you know what? I don't care about actual opera singers. I wanted my bleeps and boop bloops back. <laughs> I switched this back to the original soundtrack on my Switch version. And it still gave me the original, like uh, the actual operatic soundtrack. I didn't have my bleeps and boops. I am oh, offended by really? this. I, Even the original soundtrack. Yeah, I tried. I, I I was like, I was on the phone with my partner at the time. Like, I went to my bleeps and bloops because my grandmother, who passed recently, loved those, and I was like, I need it the way that my grandmother loved it, and they wouldn't give it to me, that's and that's why sense. I am never going to play the pixel remaster version again. But in all sincerity, like, uh, what did you guys think of the opera sequence? I want to talk about that before we kind of rush our way through the end of this uh, first half. Well, I do love the fact that that was where my uh, Pixel Remastered decided to glitch, and instead of a castle, I was getting <laughs> lots of little uh, pixel. Uh, it was so good. Little, I've seen uh, the pictures; they're picture, so good. <laughs> uh, uh, pictures of Celeste in various poses, and I'm just going, "Wait, which one's the real one? What's going on?" 
and I couldn't stop. And then it, the game crashed. I managed to get a screenshot, which I shared. Um, but it was just this like jarring moment of like, what the heck? Um, but it, and this is the first time in the Pixel Remaster we really get the like change the three D aspect of it that we're no longer dealing with a 2D castle. We're suddenly in a 3D area, and it was jarring for me, at the very least, having played the original. Yeah, I got the same thing with the uh, the Switch error and having, like, 10 Celestes appear on my screen. I'm like, well, why is this opera suddenly turned into a disco? What's going on? <laughs> um, and yeah, that was that was definitely a buzzkill. So, so PSA to anybody who's thinking of picking up pixel remaster on on switch like that might happen to you uh here here it could happen on the floating continent again um <laughs> but uh yeah just so you know but otherwise you know opera opera scene is absolutely brilliant um regarding the the 3d modeling of the the opera itself i, th I thought it looked beautiful but uh correct me if i'm wrong um in the original as uh when you uh, the vision of Draco turns into flowers. Didn't you actually have to pick them up and walk them up the mm -hmm. balcony and drop yes, them off? That's so th they just made that automated in the Pixel Remaster. Indeed, they did. I was a little. A they little made it into a quick time event. One. Yeah. Yeah. And they also actually uh, changed the lyrics of the original song. I mean, they that's a translation thing. Yeah, it is a translation thing, but it it was one of those things where like, huh? Wait, there's extra stuff here. What? Huh? So, but I yeah. don't mind the retranslation and the stuff that they've messed with with the opera as much, mostly because the older, like, first of all, the GBA translation did it way worse. Uh, <laughs> the the Game Boy Advance version of this. I wish we had uh, time to talk about how much I miss the Wolseley translation here but we don't but yeah 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 <laughs> um i really feel like even though it was different and i definitely have my you know my nostalgia place in my heart the language in this felt like it was actually better it fit the the music better and i do wish that you could change it i didn't realize you couldn't change it to the uh, away from the singers but I did I know, feel like right. at least this time the singers were like the way they presented it, I felt like was better than in some of the other versions where they have tried to do other stuff. The story actually made sense this time around <laughs> uh, for the opera, but they did leave in one very interesting plot hole. At the end of the uh, uh, at the end of the opera, uh, Celeste and uh, Setzer are on the airship. And they have the moment with uh, her uh, taking Edgar's two-sided coin. We're never explained why Celeste actually knows about that story and why uh, and and the two-sided coin because she's not in that sequence when we first learned about it. Yeah, at that point, Sabin doesn't even know about it. Yep, I thought there oh, was wait, one is that... line of dialogue that might have kind of hinted at why she had the coin i thought i processed that but i could be wrong wait so i mean she does go and take it from edgar she goes hey right, can I yes, yes, this? yes. That's right. but she doesn't explain why she knows about yeah, it which yeah. is one of those little quirks i'm like that has annoyed me for 15 years god dang it 
You know, she, she saw the flashback. She was watching it with us. <laughs> She's not in that scene, though. No, yeah. I'm, not, I'm totally kidding. <laughs> yeah, that is a really interesting thing, though, because that is, like, a pretty affecting moment, like, when it's showing the, the backstory of, like, Edgar and, and Sabin and him, like, doing that. Like, that they're, you know, he's always going to uh, choose to, to stay and be king and everything or what, or let Sabin go off on his own. So, like, that is it's like really affecting it's interesting for it to come back but yeah i totally didn't have any idea like how she would know that he had that at all i was confused by that too and that's one of those little uh moments that you can also miss because if you don't have Sabin in that party you get mentions of it but you don't get the full scene no i've played this game probably 20 times i've never not had Sabin in my party That's fair. So fair, fair. Especially when you know that his magic stat is the most important one to manipulate. Um, we're not going to get yes. into like the <laughs> Esper manipulation of magic stat, but like that is the way to win this game for the record. Um, yeah, I mean, like I think that like the opera sequence is even more powerful with the HD 2D. I think it's really cool. Um, I think it's really interesting that the developers decided to make this the sequence. Like, it's like, this is the moment that our game is famous for. Like, let us upgrade this. Like, because, like, Final Fantasy VI is an HD2D remaster would, like, absolutely sell, like, hotcakes, right? Um, At least in this country, because apparently it's more popular over here than it is in Japan. Anybody you ask who's played this game, what the first thing that comes to their mind is always going to be the opera. Yeah. Yeah. Does anybody have any ideas of the reason why they think that's the case? So one of the things that definitely stand out about that sequence to me is like, so so we've already been talking about how the game like doesn't quite have a main character. We're constantly like switching between these perspectives. I think it's even interesting to note how in like the opening Narsh uh, sections of the game and when we get like Edgar and whatnot, um, what character it puts in the, the lead of the party because when at the beginning we have Terra in the lead, when Locke meets up with Terra, Locke's in the lead. When we get Edgar, Edgar's in the lead. So it's like the game's encouraging us to like swap between these characters, and I think that comes into most fruition in the opera sequence when we're actually forced to like switch between the perspectives. So like we get the opening of the opera, and then we get put in Locke's shoes. We get a little bit of flavor dialogue from whichever two other companions we brought along. We have to like go down to to visit Celeste in her uh, uh, her room where she's kind of getting ready. Then we actually have to like read the the script for the opera. We actually have to try to memorize, even though we don't actually have to memorize that much. The game's pretty generous in that sense um, because it doesn't want us. It doesn't. I don't think it wants us to screw up. It wants us to experience the opera, but it also wants us to kind of feel immersed in in, in Celeste's moment. Um, and then just like the whole plot just getting ridiculous with Ultros having to uh, trying to sabotage it, us having a time limit to get to him. It's all just so brilliantly and uniquely structured um, in a way that plays to the game's strengths of having like its, its multiple main characters. And then just like being able to combine this like really like emotionally poignant uh, opera scene with just the pure ridiculousness of having an octopus trying to sabotage it and fighting him on stage. It's just, this is something that like like a, a 16-bit JRPG is, can only give you uh, in a lot of ways. 
Yeah, I, I thought that part where where Ultros is like on the on the rafters and he's like, Oh man, this is so heavy. It's gonna take me four <laughs> minutes to push yeah, it. Yeah. This is so Amazing. funny. And then the timer starts, you're like, Oh, okay, like literally four minutes. All right. It's, it's just such a part, goofy thing. It's the most poignant and uh, up until that point, the most point one of the most poignant parts of the game and the most Looney Tune-esque. Yeah. Because it is literally a yeah. two ton weight yeah. that he is trying to push off. You're just waiting for Acme to show up. And for it to pull off both those things at the same time that well, like like kudos to Final Fantasy VI. I mean the music in this game gets a lot of well deserved praise and like, I can't think of another game where they literally, I mean, the whole opera isn't even in here. He wrote an entire operetta, <laughs> and this is like, you know, what they could do with it, with 16 bits at the time. It's incredible that anyone would actually take the time to do that. <laughs> yeah, the well, the music, I think, is unquestionably like, in my opinion, the strongest aspect of this game. Like, it is beautiful. Almost every piece is just really uh, memorable and and catchy. And um, just the whole time I was playing it, I was just always in awe of the music. And I think, you know, obviously it's the Pixel Remaster version, so it's like, you know, it's like more it's orchestrated right and like remastered and everything. So um, it just is, I can't get, you know, that's the one thing that I come away from this game being like, this is like 10 out of 10 amazing is the music for sure it also amuses me that uh when oc remix did their album of final fantasy 6 music uh, music which i absolutely adore they have either three or four different versions of covering the opera and some of them are played straight and some of them well it, it's like the bohemian rhapsody of operas <laughs> and it is glorious and the fact that they could do those two different versions and people are just like, yep, that makes complete sense, just really plays to the aspects of this game being both other goofball and just so poignant at the same time. Yeah, I mean, I think that the music is such a critical part of why we still talk about this game. I, I, I feel like it it drives so much of what we do. And the fact that like the world theme, we just walk out <laughs> of the town and when then we hear Terra's theme and it's so epic um, is amazing. And I also think like you pair that with the, mu the music of the opera. And even though it is like over the top and weird and it was bleeps and bloops originally, which please give me the bleeps. And bloops. <laughs> um, I, I, the fact that it also had power originally is also why this game is so powerful to people still today, right? Like it, it it's stupid, but at the time it felt epic. Um, and I think that's a really important thing to note here. Yeah, if um, anybody uh is interested yeah. in kind of learning more about the the music behind the game, uh, Boss Fight Books. Uh, I don't know if any of you are familiar with that series, but uh, generally. I brings in like a different author to to write like a certain take on a video game and the one on final fantasy 6 is written by uh like a, a real composer and uh yeah. touches on specifically the music of the game and it's a fantastic read yeah um, i actually highly think we have a review it. for that on the site oh um, right okay yeah. so uh yeah no i i think it's it's fantastic 
Um, so, uh, not, not, not to rush through the, the latter portions of the game, uh, or like latter portions of this section, because we've gone through a lot of this already. But, um, you know, after we do that, we recruit Setzer, who is a womanizing airship driver instead of a womanizing king. I do think that Setzer and Edgar's characterization, at least at this point in the game, is maybe a little too similar. Uh, in this latter portions, oh man, his stuff with Daryl is fantastic but we'll we'll get to that um <laughs> you know we we decide that we need to go to the sealed gate to deal with the espers we act we release the espers and then the emperor's like hey you release the espers and now they're destroying everything and that's a problem and we go meet with them and there's like the dumbest mini game ever we're not going to talk about it because it's dumb <laughs> I, i've decided on it uh right now um and we're also short on time <laughs> but i want to uh, just quickly mention go ahead. if i may that one of the interesting things about final fantasy 6 is like some of the empire's like big bad moments are your fault like the whole reason they know that magicite yeah. is uh, more stronger than the espers themselves is because you you're the one who discovers it and shows it to them and you open, uh, you help open the sealed gate, which then leads to the espers getting out and destroying towns, and then allows the empire to make this next big step. And so it, it once again plays to the like, oh crap, am I the bad guy here? No, not, but it adds to. <laughs> <No. it. laughs> but, but like, it's an interesting way of thinking about it because, like, as I was playing this time, I remember thinking like, hey. Maybe we shouldn't go to the gate. That, that seems like a bad idea. And then we did anyway. And yeah, so I think that you're onto something there. Like um, the ways in which like human fallacy leads to the mistakes. And I don't think this game is working on that thematic level, but it's like at least pushing towards that thematic level uh, of the, the games that might eventually deal with that issue. Um, even when like, after that meeting with the Empire and after they raise the, the floating continent, uh, which is where we're going to stop sort of from a plot perspective, like you've had something to do with that. Um, so like just, just very quickly before we wrap up here, uh, what are some final thoughts or uh, uh, final things that we haven't talked about about the world of balance in the first half of this game um, that everybody on the uh, podcast wanted to talk about that we haven't touched on yet? I just think it feels very appropriate that just like in the game itself, um, Strago and Realm are getting the short end of the stick just by coming in too late because <laughs> we're not even going to talk about their segment. And, Correct. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but um, also, Interceptor is a very good boy. Yeah, yeah. One of the best boys in video games. Random fun fact. If you sit down at the dining car in the train with Shadow in front, he feeds his meal to Interceptor. Oh my Love god! That. Oh, and speaking of Shadow, um, just like uh, one of these other kind of like narrative secrets of the game is just like if you end up um, doing this really weird thing where you only take three party members instead of four out of Narsh, and then you do end up paying him to recruit him in... I forget the name of the town, but in the one you, you go to shortly after that. Uh, and then you sleep at that inn, you start getting these really interesting flashbacks that reveal more about his character. Just definitely definitely one of the coolest secrets about the game, and one that I didn't 
uncover for the for the longest time. Um, but yeah, re- really cool character and a really cool way to present a character and try to try to develop a character I, in a, a much more secretive way. I agree. I, I had no idea you could do that in the first half of the game. Like I knew you could do that in the second half, but I did not know in the first half you could do that. That's very cool. I'm just also amazed that like the entire way from Doma to the Phantom Forest and up to the train, up until the train, he has one sixteenth of a chance of leaving your party at any given time, leaving you with just two characters. I was very glad Save. he did not leave me this time. <laughs> Save off. Yes. Indeed. <laughs> okay, so um, that leads us up to towards the end of the se- the first half of Final Fantasy VI. We will talk about the next half of Final Fantasy VI on our next episode, and that is... How much we know at this point, we are literally recording this on the same day as the PlayStation Direct. I don't know, the PlayStation something. Um, and I, I was waiting for that to figure out what we we're going to do on our next episode. It hasn't really helped me, but, you know, we'll figure it out. <laughs> um, so um, in terms of housekeeping, um, so uh, if you want to get in touch with us, uh, you can get, do that in a lot of different ways. You can email us, retro at RPGfan.com. You can also find us on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, on Discord, on YouTube, on Twitch, which streams almost every day. Scott is a machine. We also have a shop uh, uh, where you can buy like RPG Fan t-shirts. If you go to RPGfan.com, we have a whole uh, link for that where you can go do that. Um, we also have two other fine podcasts, uh, Random Encounter, which does every two weeks. It's mostly about randomness, mostly about current events, and also Rhythm Encounter, which is the other two weeks of those two weeks, and it's about RPG music. You can also review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, uh, you know, anywhere you find podcasts, you'll find you'll probably find Retro Encounter, so that's a good place to do it. But also, if you want to get in touch with us, let's talk about the panelists. So Lucy, if someone wants to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? Well, they draw a pentagram on the floor. Uh, no, actually, um, uh, as being part of the social media team, uh, you can find me on Facebook. You can fi- uh, find me on uh, Instagram. You can find me on Twitter. Um, I'm sometimes the one answering your questions when you um, are shouting into the void. And um, I'm Jess Idris at uh, most social media platforms. And Alex, what about you? Uh, not around on the social medias right now but uh if you want to get in touch uh feel free to email me at alexfranicek at gmail.com uh just following the the spelling of my name uh, as listed on the website (laughs) perfect and ben what about you um yeah i'm also not on uh, social media uh so So smart yeah you won't find me on twitter um but you could email me as well at uh, benloganlove at gmail.com Excellent. What about you, Lucas? Uh, I am still on social media for some reason. Um, <laughs> you can find me on uh, Twitter at uh, RaefGal, R-A-E-F-G-A-L-L. And you can also find me on YouTube with that same name. Perfect. And uh, while I am on social media, you can't find me because of what I do for a living. So if you want to get in touch with me, um, you can email me, ZachW at RPGFan.com, or you can also find me on RPG Fans Discord at ZachW. And, uh, you know, I, I'm really looking forward to talking about the second half of this game with you guys. Um, and 
Ben. I, I'm really looking forward to finding out what you think about the second half of the game. Yeah, I'm interested. Uh, since it opens up a lot, I'm curious to see it sure does. what it's like. Yeah. Make you think twice about sashimi for the rest of your life. <laughs> uh, and thank you, listeners. Good night and good luck.